listening to Driven by Insight. Join Willie Walker, Walker and Dunlop's chairman and CEO, as we bring you fresh perspectives about leadership, business, the economy, and commercial real estate. Willie hosts a diverse network of leaders as they share wisdom that cuts across industry lines. His guests are experts in their fields, from leading economists and CEOs to Harvard and Yale professors and everything in between. Our one goal is simple, providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. Welcome, everyone, to another Walker webcast. It is a real joy for me to have Christina Wallace joining me today. Next week, we're replaying an interview I did with Ezra Klein at the Sun Valley Writers Conference three weeks ago. And Ezra and I dive deep on artificial intelligence, homelessness, and a whole bunch of other topics that Ezra focuses on in his extremely entertaining and engaging podcast on a weekly basis for the New York Times. So to those of you who want to tune back in next week, I very much enjoyed that conversation with Ezra, and I hope you do as well. To today's guest, let me do a quick intro on Christina, and then we will dive into our discussion. A self-described human Venn diagram, Christina Wallace has crafted a career at the intersection of business, technology, and the arts. She is a senior lecturer in the Entrepreneurial Management Unit at Harvard Business School, where she is co-course head for the Entrepreneurial Manager teaches launching tech ventures and leads the MBA startup bootcamp immersion program. Her latest book, The Portfolio Life, was published earlier this year. Christina holds an undergraduate degree in mathematics and theater studies from Emory University and an MBA from Harvard Business School. She's an active angel investor in early stage tech startups, as well as commercial theater productions on Broadway. That That is not usual. We're going to dive into that in a moment. In the portfolio life, Christina adapts tried and true practices from the business sector to help you eschew the cult of ambition and experience the freedom of building the flexible, fulfilling, and sustainable life you want. Drawing on research, case studies, and her own experience, she walks you step-by-step through the process of designing a strategy for the long haul because you deserve rest, relationships, and a rewarding career. Not someday, but today. And after all, you only live once. So, Christina, first of all, welcome. Second of all, I want to start here. You say you wrote the book almost as an autobiography to explain to your mom what you've done with your life, which I love. And and that's great. But as I sat there and read it and knew all of my background on you as a person and how you live your life, I sort of felt like I was reading a book like by Michael Jordan saying it's just a game or Kim Kardashian saying it's just a selfie. In other words, like it didn't match with what I know about you as being one of the most engaged, hustling, career focused, trying everything. I mean, I I get the fact that you are so talented in multi disciplines that you have the capability to write this. And yet to sort of write it for others, I sort of sat there and said, this is like MJ saying, ah, don't worry about it. You don't need to work that hard. It's just a game. Tell me why I should listen to what you said, given what I know about you as a person. Wow, that's very flattering. I don't think I've ever been uh, compared to Michael Jordan in any uh, context. You've never seen me on the basketball court. I You want a six foot. You are six foot. So everyone watching this should know that Christina. Complete failure on basketball. (laughs) Part of this, I think, stems so deeply from I I go after every piece of my career, every piece of my life because I 
I want to. I care deeply about it. It fills me. It brings me joy. There's no element of what I do because I'm I'm driving for prestige or money or or something that other people are impressed by. And I I know remembered when I started my MBA at HBS and I met all of these uh, folks. I came from a very uh, non-traditional background. I'd worked at the Metropolitan Opera before I came to business school. And I asked folks, you know, like, what do you what do you think you're going to do um, with your life? Like, why are you here? What do you are you here to learn? And so many of them said, well, I'm going to be the CEO of a multinational company. And I was like, OK, which one? Like, do you have an, an industry in mind? Do you have a, a, a sector that you care about? Do you have any connection to this work? Or is this just a certain level of power and cachet and prestige that you aspire to? And I, I really didn't feel a connection to that at all. My ambition is very much from a place of doing things that I care about and that I want to see a difference in. And so part of what I'm trying to espouse in this book and in, in this sort of model is allow yourself to reconnect to the shit you care about and then figure out the business model for your life and for your work that actually matches to that. And it's probably not going to look like everyone else's. And so it requires a certain amount of entrepreneurialness and and um, creativity in how you're going to put those pieces together and manage it. But that is what I believe is going to fill you and give you the longevity to still hustle 20, 30, 40 years down the line because it's going to keep changing as you change. So you talk about that. And when you describe those, you know, fellow HBS students who said, I want to be CEO of a multinational company, it, when Ezra Klein and I had our conversation in Sun Valley a couple of weeks ago, Ezra asked me, what's the, what, what does our society put value on? And my response to him was success and achievement. And, and there were 2000 people in the, in the audience and everybody sits there and nods their head. And yet you state in your book, step back from the cult of ambition. Yet you're teaching at the Harvard Business School, where at least from my take, that's probably the most ambitious cohort of people you can possibly find on the face of the planet. So help me understand that. The, 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 those, the, that's a little bit conflicting there. If you were like teaching the arts across the river at the college, I could kind of get it. But teaching this of disassociating yourself from the cult of ambition at the Harvard Business School seems a little counter to what I would typically think. Sure. For one, let me be clear. I am ambitious. I'm incredibly ambitious. But the cult of ambition, the way I think about that is the world in which every time you achieve a thing, the very next thought in your mind is, okay, what's next? What's bigger? What's higher? What's more impressive? What's next? And it is this this linear mindset that requires constantly moving up into the right. And usually in only one dimension of your life, your professional life. I am incredibly ambitious right now. I'm ambitious in many dimensions of my life, not just my work, my book, my teaching, also my family. I have a one-year-old and a three-year-old. There's a lot of work I'm putting into helping my kids get off to a start where they have emotional control. They have an understanding of how the world works in a way that they fit into and they can be kind and generous. 
I have ambition for my marriage so it doesn't fall apart at this motion of early children at a career, right? There's a lot of dimensions that I seek ambition. And part of what I'm trying to bring to my students at HBS is that understanding that ambition can be incredibly wonderful. It can drive you for sure, but don't let it be the the only God you worship. <laughs> and in particular, when I think about where I could have the most impact. I don't need to go across the river to the art students and teach them to follow what they love. I need to go to the business school students who are willing to work themselves toward a goal that they might not even want. But they haven't questioned that because it's so shiny and it's so respected by society. And honestly, if we can have a few a few less miserable billionaires, I think that is a pretty pretty significant impact on the world. I as you talk about the students that you teach at HBS, I I had sort of two comments and and, and sort of a, a question for you, which is that you, you teach entrepreneurial marketing and entrepreneurial management. Do you, and I'm sure that you have students come up to you all the time and say to you, like, I, rem- I heard you say once that someone walked up to you and said, what hobby should I pick up? And you were sort of like, that, that ain't for me to determine what hobby you ought to pick up. This is this is expressing your own interest, not what Christina Wallace says you ought to go do, which I which I loved. Um, it was great. But I can only imagine that you you see a lot of business plans and you have a lot of students who come up to you and say like, oh, I'm excited to be an entrepreneur and this or that. Do you ever sit there and look at that student and say, you know what, from my knowledge of you, you actually aren't built up to be an entrepreneur and you actually ought to go take that job at McKinsey? I have never said it in those words. I've thought it a couple of times. The closest I have come to it is saying, I wonder if this is the right move for you next. As you think about the experiences, the network, the mindset, the resources you need to be a successful entrepreneur, do you feel like you have those yet or you have access to them yet? Or is there some experience you might want to gain maybe as the chief of staff to an early stage CEO so you can see what these these environments feel like, right? That the roller coaster, the constant change, the uncertainty that comes in the earliest stages, you might find that's not the best fit for you. Maybe you are a better fit in the later stages of company building or once it's already up and running and you're thinking about the scaling of a company. So not not everyone has to be that founder that they're, you know, they're on day zero to be entrepreneurial and to build things. And part of this work is to figure out where you fit. You know, I I write in the book that one of my great joys was finally embracing that I'm a very strangely shaped puzzle piece. I, I embrace that. I'm a weirdo. And I would argue that everyone is a strangely shaped puzzle piece and your work is to figure out what shape you are. So that when you go into rooms, whether it's jobs or relationships or anything else, you have an understanding of where you fit. And it's not a question of do you do you like me? It's just like, do I do I fit the puzzle? <laughs> like the space that's available, do I fit or not? And if I don't, rather than like shave off parts of my puzzle piece to try to like jam it in, maybe I should just find the rooms that want me. So when you 
finished Emory, you say that you were fluent in three languages, mm-hmm. math, music, and English. Yes. Take us on a quick journey from that young woman who was fluent in three languages of math, music, and English to getting to the Harvard Business School. What, what was that journey like that ended up putting you in Boston, Massachusetts a couple of years later? So when I graduated, I had a really hard time deciding if I was going to get a PhD in math or if I was going to pursue a career in the arts. I really did love both. I have loved both my entire life. And so I applied to a bunch of PhD programs and then I applied to a bunch of jobs in the arts. And I basically said, the universe will tell me which way I should go. And I got into a couple of PhD programs and I went to visit. And it became very clear this was not my path. You know, I, I spoke with a couple of professors and they said, I got to be honest, in all of my years of reading applications, I've never had a candidate with a recommendation letter from a theater professor before. So that's a little odd. And they said, you know, it's not that you can't do this work. I just wonder if you are going to want to focus for the next six or seven years on one tiny little problem in mathematics that maybe a dozen people in the world care about. And when they put it that way, I was like, you're right, I don't. Like, That's not the fit for me. Thank you for helping me figure that out. And so I moved to New York and I sent my resume everywhere. There was a, a website at the time called the New York Foundation for the Arts job job board. And I just sent out like 50 resumes. This is back in the era where you still printed them out and sent them. My students don't believe that that ever happened now. And I got exactly one interview and it was at the Metropolitan Opera. Um, I had applied for their director of children and supernumeraries, which are the extras in operas. Um, I was literally 20, 21. I had no work experience, but I applied to a director level job because apparently I have some chutzpah. And um, the HR director called and said, you know, he's like laughing. He's like, yeah, so you're not a director level um, candidate, but we filled that job internally. And now we have another opening as a rehearsal associate. Uh, are you interested? And I was like, obviously, yes. And he's like, do you know what that means? And I said, no, <laughs> but I have 600 bucks in my pocket. And like, this is the only job lead I have. I did not tell him that. But I went into interview and as part of the process, they they really wondered if I'd be a fit there. They said, we talked to your references and they said, you like to come in and change things. And we're not interested in that. We are the Metropolitan Opera. We've been doing things for a hundred plus years this way. And so as part of me accepting the offer, they made me handwrite on the bottom of my contract. I, Christina Wallace, promise not to ask to change a single thing in my first year here. I was so broke. I was like, whatever, I'll take it. Neon flashing red lights. I didn't care. I took the job and for a year, I kept my mouth shut and I took a lot of notes. And after a year, I showed up in my manager's office and I said, I have some ideas. (laughs) She's like, oh, dear. And I said, in particular, I have this one idea, you know, we're doing all of these in my hand. Rehearsal associate, it's very high level. It's operations and contract management. I was like, we ha- we're doing all these things by hand. I think we can turn this into a computer program. I did some programming as part of my math major. I can't code the whole thing, but like, find me an engineer. I can work with them and we can automate a ton of this stuff. And, you know, I looked at our financial situation. We're a little bit over budget every year. And I think because so much of our budget is people, if we can find some efficiencies here in how we schedule rehearsals and performances, like we could probably get closer to breaking even. And she looked at me just absolutely bemused and was like, get the F out of my office. (laughs) I didn't like that answer. So I went to her boss and he kicked me out. I went to his boss and she kicked me out. So I finally went all the way to the top to Peter Gelb. 
And he basically is like, look, what? this is this is not a place where we're going to change things quickly. This is not a place for someone who's young and ambitious. Like there's nowhere to go until someone dies or retires. And I looked above me and everyone was healthy and in their 50s. And I was like, OK. And he's like, I think you should go to grad school. Everyone smart goes to grad school. I was like, OK. So I went home and I, I Googled MBA programs. I didn't know anyone who went to business school, but I figured that's where the people who run the world go to school. I took the GMAT two weeks later and then got in. Quite luckily, like the year before the financial crisis, which is when everyone decided to go to business school. So there was a ton of luck involved, but showed up to business school thinking, I don't know the difference between a stock and a bond, but I'm going to figure it out because these are the skills that the people who get to make the decisions built. And I want to be in the the roof, the room where it happens, as they say in Hamilton. So you get to HBS and second year you take Clay Christensen's course to those who whose name Clay Christensen might not be a household name. Clay wrote a legendary business book called The Innovator's Dilemma, which was built written in 1997 and has been reprinted thousands of times. And Talk for a moment, Christina, about Clay's impact on you, because I've read enough of what you've written. I've heard enough of what you said that of all the people who had a big impact on you at HBS, it was Clay. Why? Why? What did Clay either do, teach um, or say that captured your imagination? Oof. Clay was just an amazing, amazing man. And he made me realize the impact that professors at HBS can have at scale, right? Not just in the writing and, and you know, sharing it with the world, but also on the people who sit in the seats in, in those classrooms. And so I took this course with him, Building and Sustaining a Successful Enterprise. It's a terrible title for a class, but it's about how to stay innovative, how big organizations can, you know, use these theories around disruption to continue to innovate and find new businesses and basically disrupt themselves. And, you know, he taught this incredibly fascinating class with this very academic style, which is not typically the style at HBS. So it's much more practical in most other classes. And this required us to formulate theory and sort of extrapolate into higher level thinking. And then on the last day, he came in and said, you know, I'm going to take the turn toward the personal today. And in that moment, you know, he had shared with us, he had just been diagnosed with brain cancer. And it was it was quite possible. Many of us thought in, in the moment, as did he, that this might be his last semester teaching. And so he he used that last class as a way to talk about our lives and the responsibility that managers had because of the impact they had on all the people who worked for them, right? You you have a bad day, you take it out on someone, they go home, that's how they show up for their family. That's how they show up for their team, right? It becomes this huge cascading effect. And, and so he talked, you know, quite extensively about the ideas that ended up becoming his book, How Will You Manage Your Life? But it was this notion that we could take the tools that he'd been teaching us for managing businesses and we could apply them to our lives. And maybe that feels really wonky to take frameworks from the business world and, you know, set up your life and give it kind of a balanced scorecard or whatever else. But for for us in the room, it made a lot of sense, right? It, it connected with how we thought about priorities and resource management. And 
he gave us permission to to care about our professional life, yes, but to care very deeply about our personal life. I think oh. it was the first time that I'd ever heard, certainly at HBS, but even beyond, people say, you know, it matters if you're happy. That's not just like a silly little, you know, thing that people who don't aspire too much <laughs> get to have. Like, it, it matters. Unhappy people who are hugely ambitious can wreak havoc on the world. It matters that you're happy. It matters that you invest in your family and and in the communities that you serve. And that impact is as important as the professional ambitions that you might have. So it's interesting that your first two books are basically on those two themes. So your, your first book, New to Big, is all about how large companies can be more entrepreneurial and scale new ideas. And so I want to focus on that first. And then the portfolio life is very much on that other piece that you took so much out of that last class with Clay, which I, when I asked you about that, I didn't know you were going to come right, you know, that you hit that softball right down, down the middle <laughs> of the field in a sense that I didn't know that there were those two things. But let, let's talk for a moment, Christine, about the new to be, because in that book, you talk about a growth operating system. And and, and you you basically say to larger companies that this isn't kind of a one-off moonshot of let's figure out what the new entrepreneurial idea is today, put resources to it and like enter that market. This is more about kind of per building a permanent ladder to the moon where you've, you've got a culture inside of the company, you've got the systems inside of the company. And I think most importantly, what you underscore is the risk-taking and ability to fail culture that is so lacking in many large corporations that must be there for large corporations to be able to pursue these innovative ideas. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a challenge. I mean, this is when I wrote that book with the CEO of the last company I worked with, Bionic, David Kidder. We were working with these huge Fortune 500s and, you know, they could they could build these sort of one-off innovation uh, successes, but they required almost like an act of God. Like it required the CEO picking up the phone every third day and be like, just do it. Like break the rules. <laughs> Go ahead. Like I know legal, you don't like doing this. Just do it. And it, and it showed that like you can be innovative in these one-off efforts through these acts of God, but that is not a sustainable, repeatable innovation strategy. And so if you really want to build that culture of innovation where you can disrupt your own business rather than waiting for the startups to do it and then acquiring them so that they don't, for you to do this, you have to build effectively an internal entrepreneurial ecosystem. And an entrepreneurship has at its core this high failure rate, right? You're trying many, many things with uh, a high failure rate in the effort of getting faster, closer to what is going to be successful. You're searching for the truth. You're not, you're not planning the truth. You're not writing out a three-year, you know, product launch over something that you have absolutely no evidence the market wants which is often how large company innovation is planned. And so it, it requires this sort of injection of an entire entrepreneurial system. So it's not just the workers being more entrepreneurial as they run experiments, look for evidence, chase down new, new trends or new behaviors that they think might be interesting. It also requires the senior leadership 
to take off that executive operational hat and to put on a venture capital hat that says we're going to make lots of bets. And we expect that most of them will fail, but in their failure, they will teach us something. And out of that portfolio of bets, a few will survive. And that we are okay with failure as long as it is in search of the commercial truth. And that's just an entirely different way of operating that requires a a bit of like a a truth telling that doesn't exist in some companies. (laughs) And we saw this, you know, as we worked with not just the folks on the ground doing the entrepreneurial work, but as part of our work, we, we coached, we worked with the senior leadership to help build that venture capital mindset, that way of showing up in the room of asking questions rather than, you know, offering dicta. And and we showed them, in many cases, how afraid their their company was to tell them the truth. And, and in those moments where the company could say, you know, we invalidated that. You really liked that idea at the hackathon. Turns out we did a little bit of, of research. It didn't actually require that much work to find out no one wants that. <laughs> Literally, no one wants that. It's a great idea. No one wants it. And certainly no one's going to pay for it. And to be able to tell the CEO that in this one case that we did it, the, the CEO literally went back and told that story at his next all hands as a way of not just showing the people doing the work that he valued the truth, but showing the entire company that the truth is the only thing that is going to get them closer to what that next big opportunity for growth will be. And that that requires really this mindset shift from the top down. So one thing that you say in the book that I thought was really interesting was focus on what your customers do, not what they say. Mm-hmm. So there are lots and lots and lots of companies out there that sit down with clients, listen intently to what they're saying, and then go back and craft a strategy to meet those needs because the client has said, well, this is what we'd like to do, or this is what we get from other providers. So you need to mimic that or what have you. How does one go about looking at what the client actually does rather than what the client says? Yeah. This is crucial because your customers will lie to you. It's not because they're bad people. (laughs) And sometimes they don't even know they're lying to you, right? Sometimes they're trying to tell you what they know you want to hear. But sometimes it's because they're projecting a version of themselves that they want to be true. It's just not true. I think the, the perfect example of this, I worked with a large packaged foods company that that kept hearing from their customers they wanted healthier food options, especially healthier things that they could eat on the go. And so they said, oh, we got to come up with health, healthy options that can, you know, sit at the front of the grocery store. And, you know, we have all these different ideas. Let's see which ones we, we should use. And we said, okay, let's do some ride-alongs with some of your customers. We're just going to spend the day with them and we're going to watch how they eat. And we set up the experiment in two ways. One, where we basically paid for what they ate every day. We gave them gift cards to cover that so that it wouldn't come down to, well, I want to eat healthy, but it's too expensive. So we wanted to take that out of the equation. And then the other case, we didn't pay. We just let them do their normal thing. And we just literally like hung out with them for the day. We sat in the car, we rode around, we we did their errands with them. And we got in to the car with one customer who had been going on and on all morning about how much she cared about being a healthy eater and how this was really part of her her identity and and what she wanted to show her kids. And then we get in the car and the the floor of the passenger seat of her car 
are like 12 Snickers wrappers and like a handful of empty Coke cans. And we're like, interesting. Okay, so so what what you're telling us, but what you're doing are two very different things. And and we have to unpack that. And so we get into the real truth of the matter, which is some of it is about convenience. Some of it is about form factor and being able to eat on the go. Some of it is about perception. I want to be the type of person who is healthy, but also those Snickers bars are really delicious. And so like getting to the root of behavioral experiments and particularly transactive experiments, things that cost your customer something. They say, you want this great. Give me your credit card to pre-order. Sign up. Give me an LOI, a, a binding LOI for this thing. Like put a little bit of something on the line so that it's not just, yes, I like that because that doesn't cost you anything. And once you get into the actual transactions of a study of experimentation, you'll start to get to the truth much faster than just asking for what they want. So as we transition from your first book to your second book in the portfolio life, which I want to dive into in a second, I want to touch on the personal side of things for a moment because your TED talk on how you found your husband, Chaz, <laughs> is so good. And it is so Christina Wallace. It's scary. Okay. So... I don't, I don't want to spend too much time on this because anyone who wants to watch it can go watch it on TED. Just pull up Christina Wallace TED Talk and it will come right up for you. But talk for a moment about you taking a dating app and turning it into a funnel and then also the zero date. Yeah. So I, this, this started as I was approaching turning 30. I, I had been dating in New York City and anyone who's ever dated in New York City will feel me right now. It's just a terrible place to have to date. I had had a serious boyfriend through business school that didn't work out. And then it was like on my own as an entrepreneur in New York City trying trying to find a partner. And I, as I was approaching 30, you know, the fake deadline where women are supposed to expire and I was feeling this pressure. I was like, look, I am really good at business and I am really bad at dating. So I'm just going to treat dating like a business problem and I'm going to apply my business tools and we're going to solve this problem. And so I took myself on an offsite. I went camping by myself in Maine for a week and, you know, pitched a tent, wore some flannel, drank some whiskey and like did a retro on all of my previous dating situations, my relationships, the situationships and tried to get to the bottom of like, where did they go wrong? At what point did they know they went wrong? How long did I stick around after I knew they were going to work? And I started to realize in doing this work, I'm like, this is just sales funnel analysis. Like I literally do this all the time as I'm doing deals. So I just need to set up the sales funnel and I need to really understand my qualifying criteria to move a prospect through the funnel from, you know, potential lead to qualified lead to, to each of these things. Like, what am I going to do and what am I going to ask for them? And again, behavior, do not say, what are the, what are they going to do to show that they're interested and that they're committed to this? And then, uh, you know, at what point do they get ejected from the funnel? And I'm just going to, use online dating as a way to source leads because it is a way to meet lots of people that you don't run into on a daily basis. But I'm not going to use it as a way to qualify leads because I think I was finding I was I was tending toward using these online profiles like a resume review. And then it turns into like, you look great on paper, but we don't have any chemistry. So I was like, I'll source my leads 
And then we're going to get offline as quickly as possible. And this was crucial because the things that I, I had identified that I really cared about in a partner, I couldn't really vet online. But I didn't want to be giving up like three hour dinners for people that I had hardly vetted. And so I came up with something in between, which is the zero date. It's not a first date, but it's the zero date. And it's one drink, one hour to answer one question, which is, do I want to be stuck for three hours having dinner with this person? And and I would just stack them back to back. I would pick one night a week for dates and I would do three a night as a way. And I would tell them ahead of time, you know, I've got a hard stop. I wouldn't tell them I have another date, but tell them I have a hard stop. So we're setting expectations appropriately. And it was just like, do I want to know more? And so I set up this funnel and I I started, you know, I had a couple hundred inbounds at the top and you can watch the TED Talk to see the math of how many make it to the bottom. But going through this process, it's how I met my husband. He loves the story. He thinks it's absolutely hilarious. <laughs> and well, the thing that I find so interesting, <laughs> the thing I find, the thing I find so interesting about it, Christina, is this. The first thing is a lot of people use dating apps like a game and you're very clear in saying it's not a game. Like this is serious stuff. Use it as the tool that it is. The other thing is that you're very straightforward in saying the access to potential partners is what makes the app so valuable. In other words, hanging out in New York, you can only go to so many bars. You can only meet so many people in a night. You get stuck in a conversation for four hours and that's the end of it. And you might not want to see that person again for the rest of your life. So use it for what it actually is. And I, as I, as I listened to you talk about that, I said, you know, there's so much out there on LinkedIn and Instagram and all these different things that are sort of clickbait. They don't, you know, they kind of, they keep us interested, but they don't actually produce anything. And what I found so interesting about what you did with the dating app was you actually understood what the dating app had as far as a benefit to getting you what you wanted to do. You used it as the tool that it is not necessarily intended to be used at, but what you saw as being the ability to get you the outcome. And then you actually were wildly successful because you met Chaz on it and the two of you now have two kids and all the rest is kind of history. But I, as I sit around and think about all the different social media sources that we have, as I think about bankers and brokers at Walker and Dunlop, who use a Salesforce database, who use LinkedIn, who go to conferences and all the kind of the the distance between the lip and the cup to use a, a golf analogy as it relates to, oh, I've got this person. I met him on LinkedIn. I think they're going to, you know, I think they're going to borrow money from Walker and Dunlop and this is going to be great. And then it doesn't get converted into something because they're using the tool as just kind of broadcasting who they are rather than really identifying who a real potential client can be and converting that connection into an actual sale. That's exactly it. Like understanding what the tool can do and what it can't and defining what you need at each stage of the funnel or whatever the process is that you're developing, saying, what is the right tool for that? And how do I piece together the, the you know these different steps in order to get to the outcome that I care about? And I think it, as crucial as that is, you know, in understanding both what they can do, it's also what evidence this gets back to my my obsession with evidence in experimentation and innovation. What evidence are they offering that they are interested in taking this to the next step? Are they giving me an email? Are they offering their time? Are they saying yes to a coffee? Am I doing all of the work to show up and it's convenient for them? Or are they in some way showing in good faith that this is something they care about too? And it's looking for that transactional evidence at each stage 
to help you have just higher fidelity in in the process. So in the portfolio life, mm-hmm. you hate the term work-life balance. Yes. So if you hate that term, have you come up with a better one? Yeah, portfolio life. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I hate the term work-life balance because it sounds like, you know, it's like you got a teeter-totter and you've got work on one side and you've got life on the other and you're trying to get them to balance. I mean, that that's the image that conjures in my head. And I I hate that. I, I For one reason, they're never going to balance. There are always going to be phases where one is going to be heavier than the other. So I'm not sure balance is the goal. And then two, I hate it because work is a subset of life. It is not in opposition to life. So when I, I think about a portfolio life, and I use that term intentionally, not just portfolio career, a portfolio life, it, you know, you think about your financial portfolio, you you visualize it as a pie chart and your work is a piece of that pie chart. And so are your relationships, your community, your hobbies, your rest, the other things that you allocate your time and talents to, they all are a slice of that pie chart and it adds up to 100%. So your work is in the context of your life and that cannot be separated because as you think through these different seasons of your life, these different chapters where you might need very different things, you would then are going to have to adjust your work and all of your other allocations to be balanced, balanced in a portfolio sense for that season of life. So a couple of things here. I mentioned to you previously that I now know why at the 20th, I went back to my HBS 25th reunion uh, a year ago. You didn't present there, but you presented this year and you were the rave of the of the reunion. And and somebody said, oh, she was amazing. And now that I've done my homework on you, I realize why. Because once you get to my age, HBS has figured out, we're not trying to teach you how to manage or how to lead or how to make a financial analysis anymore. You're done with that part of your life. Now you're into kind of like enjoying things. But then you also said to me, no, but they also have me speak to the people who are back for their first reunion and their fifth reunion and their 10th reunion. So I think about this in in the following way, Christina. I'm interviewing two people who both went to Emory mm-hmm. and in comes this woman who was a finance major. She interned at an investment bank in the summer and then for a real estate firm. And she says, my dream job is to be a mortgage banker at Walker and Dunlop and do big transactions and loans. This is all I want to do. And I meet with her and it's all great and good. And then in comes this young gentleman who also went to Emory and had the same GPA as she did. But he says, I was pre-med at Emory, took some biology and some other courses, but decided I don't want to be a doc. Um, I'm a big skateboarder. And so I spent my summers at a skateboard shop. Um, I also play in a band and um, I I really like reading literature and uh, doing a job in commercial real estate finance sounds like kind of a cool thing to do. Okay. So I see these two people and I say to myself, like, who am I hiring? Like, who am I hiring? I'm hiring the woman. Like, flat out, I'm hiring the woman because she's walked in saying, like, why she wants to work at Walker Nullup and all that. Whereas you talk a lot in your book that actually I ought to be hiring the young man because of his diversity of thoughts and experiences and everything else. So, Help me from two perspectives. One, Willie Walker, the hirer, mm-hmm. versus Willie Walker, the first year out of Emory interviewing for a job. Sure. So I, I say maybe you should hire him. And I say maybe for two reasons. Number one, 
the way you just presented him, he didn't tell me a very compelling story of why this. Even if you do a lot of things, even if you had the pre-med background and the literature and the skateboarding and the whatever else, I still want to know you're intentionally choosing this and you're not just falling into it. So I would tell him, the person interviewing, we got to work on your story. Because even if this hasn't been what you've wanted to do your whole life, I at least want to understand why it's the right fit for this chapter of your life. What do you want to learn? Who do you want to learn it from? And why is it a good fit for now? If you can't tell me that, I'm not hiring you. The other thing I'd want to know from the female candidate is, what else do you do? I, I see this laser focus, and that is admirable. But I have to imagine that your business is not going to look the same in 10 years as it does today. And I want to be hiring people who are bringing in fresh perspectives, who are reading things that have nothing to do with your business, who are paying attention to consumer trends or technology developments or things that don't in any way seem related. Because in some point, they might, right? These intersections, these traits, these changes They come out of nowhere, but people who are paying attention see them coming. And so I want someone who is not just laser focused, but also has an understanding that she needs to be not well-rounded. I hate that term too, but she needs to be spiky. (laughs) She needs to be well lopsided in more than just this industry. So getting a sense of how else she is understanding and learning about the world will tell me what she might be able to bring to this work. So I would probably be like you and lean toward her, but depending on how old she is and what she's interested, I might spend a lot of time coaching her into developing this other this other piece of who she is so that this one-sidedness doesn't become a liability 10 years from now when your business has dramatically changed and she hasn't grown with it. So double click on that for a moment as it relates to orthogonal networks. You Mm -hmm. talk in the book about basically um, two vectors that don't overlap. Talk about that either from either a business strategy standpoint, as far as what the need is to have people who can think that way, or the other is as an individual developing those orthogonal networks as it relates to what your interests and what your capabilities are. Yeah. Orthogonal networks, I think these are crucial and they're so valuable to to managers when you have you know, individuals who are really active in developing this. And it's for a couple of reasons. As an individual, an orthogonal network, and by that, I mean a perpendicular or non-redundant network. You could think about this as my theater network and my mass network, right? I'm likely the only person that overlaps between those worlds. You, you want this because you are, you as an individual, you bring value to both worlds by being the node that connects them. And you are able to take ideas and people from one world and introduce them to the other. So you can be this sort of, you know, cross disciplinary theater of ideas. A perfect example of this, you mentioned I angel invest and I also invest in Broadway. And uh, I just did another investment on Broadway and I had to fill out all of these papers by hand and I had to form an LLC in order to do this. And I was like, guys, you do know in the tech world, I just go to AngelList and I, I wire them my money to be part of a roll-up vehicle that just flows in to the startup and they manage all of the taxes and they manage all the investor management. It's all done on the platform. Meanwhile, in theater world, I'm still like hand signing and taking photos of PDFs and like, you've got to be joking. And the producers that I was talking to were like, are you, are you serious? Like I've, 
I've never heard that. Like I've, I've lived my entire life in commercial theater. I've never been exposed to that. Is there an entire other way we could be doing this that might offer efficiencies and, you know, cut down and streamline things? And I'm like, oh, not only is this a new idea I brought, maybe my relationships and my network might be able to build something in this space. Maybe this is an opportunity for me to pursue. So, so a you as an individual, it gives you ideas, it gives you value to add to both sides, and it gives you optionality. If one thing starts slowing down or you're seeing a recession or you're seeing, you know, some some lack of growth in one area, you can pivot into another and you've already got those relationships seated. As a manager, why this is so valuable is that you have employees who are constantly thinking about and having access to completely different worlds, whether that becomes a source of clients or whether that is a source of other talent. Uh, I, I think about one of my friends who works in a computer software uh, company who realized one day that she could tap into actors as a great source of salespeople. Actors make great salespeople. They're wonderful at listening and not just talking all the time. And she had this untapped source of, you know, really affordable talent that wanted to hustle in her ecosystem where she was struggling to find experienced salespeople. So, so you have access to these worlds, but also it, it ensures that your people are again, like staying, staying present and staying active in what is shifting because the, the, the truth of the world we are in is that disruption is the new normal and it is coming faster than ever before. And so anyone who is all in on one thing, heads down, laser focused, they are missing everything that is happening around them. So I don't care what you're paying attention to. I just want you to be paying attention to something other than your day job. If you, I there's so much in there. I'm uh, the, 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 the let, let, let's go here. The, the, you talked about the portfolio uh, that you, the, the cover of your book in the UK is a donut. Yes. It's broken up into a portfolio. First of all, why is the US one have sticky notes and a Venn diagram and the UK one has a donut broken up like a portfolio? Do you, any, 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 no the research of who buys what in what area? Apparently. I, I have to tell you, I would have thought donuts would sell a lot better in the US than they would in the UK, but that's. I will know. tell my editor because we get a different cover for the paperback here in the US. And I've been. Yeah, exactly. Well, you also have Adam Grant on the cover of the book now. So that's, that, that's kudos to that. But. Let, let's go on those two. Let's for two seconds on the on the portfolio and the donut. Yes. Um, as I think about that portfolio life and various characteristics that you need to build up to have a portfolio life. Um, as far as your own personal portfolio, Christina, there's one stock that we all have in our portfolio that will never sell. It's like that for whatever reason, it was either it was your first investment. You think that Warren Buffett is the greatest person on the face of the planet and Berkshire Hathaway, you'll never sell your stock. But in that, in every portfolio, there's something that hell or high water you're not letting go of. So using the analogy to you, as far as your own portfolio life, what's that one stock you'll never let go of? The thing that I will never lose as part of my portfolio is a slice of work where I am creating. What that looks like might change over time, though. So growing up, it was as a musician. I was a classically trained musician in piano, cello, and voice. For 17 years, that was my form of creating. When I got to college, that shifted into theater as a director and an actor. 
And now at this stage of my life, it is as a producer of theater and as a writer. And it looks different in different stages, partially because of what I have access to, partially because of where my efforts might be the most fruitful. But I I learned long ago for one very long year of my life, I didn't create anything. All I did was manage. I guess you could say I created PowerPoints and they were very sad. All I did was manage. And I realized the verb at the, at the core of what brings me to life is creating. And so that becomes the, the stock I can't lose, but I'm I'm very flexible as to how that shows up in any given portfolio. So now let's talk about the sticky notes and the hundred ideas, if you will. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I read it. I've heard you talk about it. First of all, I'm petrified of it. As someone, as someone who's a, so as somebody who's a real doer, I'm really afraid to move beyond the six or eight things that I can tell you right now kind of define me. Mm-hmm. Um, but talk for a moment about why you, first of all, should have bought stock in 3M because of the number of sticky notes that are going to be sold <laughs> because of your book. But second of all, why a hundred? Man, I should have bought stock in 3M because it turns out sticky notes are at the core of all ideation in my mind. They're so, you can throw them away. You don't feel bad. A whole piece of paper, you crumple it up, you feel bad about it, right? A sticky note, you're like, you throw them everywhere. So uh, just as just as one quick thing, sorry, but when I I I, I interviewed Evan Osnos at the Sub Valley Writers Conference, and Evan was talking about systems and about coding and about how rigid the computer systems are in the U.S. government. And one of the things that just absolutely flabbergasted me from Evan's writing was that the U.S. computer system for immigration and naturalization services is so rigid that when during the Trump administration they made the decision to separate families. They have an they have an alien resident number that they give to families previously. And it's just one number for everyone in the family. So that when they separated parents and children, they didn't have the ability to go in and give distinct codes to the kids and the parents. And so at the border, they literally took sticky notes or what the A Elliot resident AR number on kids, literally like stapled to their forehead. And then when they had to put them back together, they were literally running around taking sticky notes from one to the other to put them back together. And it, it just, it was so, tra- the whole thing was tragic, but the fact that we didn't have a computer system that could deal with that change and that sticky notes were the solve to it, to your point, sticky notes are everywhere and a huge part of our world. Anyway, I digress completely, but anyway, I, you said that about sticky notes and I had to throw that in there. I mean, sticky notes are meant to be disposed of, which means they're the wrong tool for keeping families together. Anyway, and so sticky notes, a hundred wishes. So part of one of the steps that I make you do in this book is to write out a hundred wishes for your life. And I chose a hundred partially because it's a nice round number and partially because it is so far beyond. It's like orders of magnitude beyond what most of us think about as like, my goals in any given period, it really forces you out of the box of the six or the eight or the 10 that you might have had as your true north for your career. And by doing that, it makes you realize you're like, okay, I've got 15, I've got 22, I've got 30, crap, I got a 70 more. It makes you think about, okay, well, what are all the other things that I want? Because your career can only get you so many sticky notes. 
And then you start thinking about, okay, well, I want to climb all seven of the tallest mountains in the world. I want to, you know, and you start, you come up with, I want to learn to make the world's best sourdough. You come up with these sort of still very big highlights of things. And even then you only get to maybe 50. And then you start to think about some of the more mundane things. I want to have dinner with my family more nights than not. I want my kids to still like me when they're out of the house. I want to be friends with them as adults. (laughs) I want my marriage to survive. (laughs) What does that look like? I I want us to be happy and still in love 30 years from now. And you start thinking of, of much more sort of quotidian wishes for your life. And you realize that like those require your effort too. Those require intention and decisions and ambitions if you want to reach those. And this comes back to Clay and and what he talked to us about. He's like, listen, if you have, you know, your marginal hour in any given week, you could put that hour toward the big project at work. And in six or, you know, 12 months, you're going to see the fruits of that hour. You're going to get that promotion or that raise or that big high five for landing that thing. And if you put that hour toward your kids, you might not know for like 18 or, you know, maybe 25 years whether that hour paid off. If you put that hour into your marriage, you might not know for 40 years whether that hour paid off. And so it's always going to be easier to put it into the thing that's closer and that has a, a quicker cycle time for showing the fruits of your work. But that doesn't mean it's not important to put it into these longer term, you know, less clear things if those things matter to you. If they don't matter to you, then decide right now they don't matter to you. And then we can stop pretending. So part of that hundred wishes is that it forces you to really think about on, you know, your deathbed, what is the imprint of your life? And I promise it is bigger than just the size of your business card. I, I love the both the sticky note exercise and then also your discussion of the marginal hour. And you just basically summarized it as it relates to, do I put that hour into my kid that I might not understand for another 18 years or do I put it into the project that gives me immediate uh, feedback? The other piece is long-term health. Um, you're, you, you've run three marathons, 22 half marathons and three triathlons. Um, the, 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 the response from all that is, yeah, I feel this way today, but the real payback for it, when you go back to your 23rd reunion, like I did last year is everyone saying, how are you still in such good shape 25 years after business school? That's the day-to-day investment in that that pays off over time, but you don't see it when you go for that run when you're 32 years old. Um, you outlined three models in the book, Christina, on sort of the portfolio life, the moonlight, the zigzag, and the multi-hyphenate. Why don't you run through those three models? And and I, I find it to be really interesting in the sense that the, you know, the all of us, when we go see a surgeon, we want that surgeon to be laser focused on what we do. I, you go to their surgeon who has the reps, the person who's done the most cases because you don't want to go to someone who's like, oh yeah, I did that surgery three years ago, but maybe we'll get in there and root around and figure out what it is. Um, And as I think about the three models for having a portfolio life, differentiating between somebody who really does need to have a more, I mean, everyone needs to have a well-rounded life and a well-rounded focus on what they do. But I do think that there's a difference between someone who might moonlight at something and then somebody else who might be in the multi-hyphenate type world. Explain that. For sure. So moonlighting, you know, some people call it the side hustle. I don't like that term for lots of reasons, but particularly because it connotes 
monetizing the thing you do on the side. And, and I don't think you have to monetize everything you do to make it be worth your time. So if you think about moonlighting, you've got the day job, the primary thing it is you do. And then you have the thing on the side, evenings, weekends, sabbaticals, whatever. And that thing could be a consulting business. It could be uh, writing a book. It could be something you make funny off of, but it could be a really serious hobby that you invest in and that you care deeply about and that you develop a skill in. And, you know, we talk about the surgeon, we want them to be excellent at surgery for sure. But I give you the flip side, which is often you see later in life, people continuing on in their career past the point where they might, should, could have retired because they have nothing else. They have nothing else. And if they were to retire, they would be sitting home I don't know, playing bridge and and they can't fathom that. And so they they stay at it longer. And I don't want the surgeon who worked and did surgery 10 years longer than they should have because they had nothing else that brought them joy. I want them to quit the day that they decide that they're done. <laughs> so I want them to love origami or golf or underwater basket weaving, whatever that thing is that says this brings me joy in a really meaningful way. And often helps me kind of turn off my brain that does the day job and gives me something in a different way. Often this might be a very tactical thing. I know very intellectual people who love throwing, making ceramics on a wheel because it gets your hands physically dirty and it makes you focus. So that's moonlighting. The second one, zigzagging is often where you have the the primary thing and then it switches to a new primary thing. And from the surface, people are like, that makes no sense. You're zigzagging from opera to entrepreneurship. But what they don't see is under the surface. Often a moonlighting thing turns into the zigzag. Maybe you did it on the side for a very long time. And in doing so, you realized maybe you de-risked the business idea. Maybe you, you saw that there was a bigger opportunity there. Maybe you were just ready for another chapter. And so you kind of dial down the day job and you, you know, dial up the moonlighting thing to become your new primary focus. And that is, it's, it's zigging and zagging from one primary thing at a time, but they do have a connection. And the last one, the multi-hyphenate, is often where you see people who are truly on like the vanguard of building new things. And this is where they're living in these multiple worlds at once, sort of equally, visibly. You'll see this in some industries very obviously, like the writer, producer, director, or the author, speaker, professor. Those are very common. But, you know, I give examples in my book of of someone who was a computer programmer and a playwright, and she did both equally at the same time. And in doing so, ended up in a position where the TED residency invited her to come in and start writing about and doing research on the intersection of technology and AI and art. And what does it mean if technology makes something creative? Is it art? If there's no intention behind it, how do we make sense of this? She was in a position to do that because she lived in both worlds equally. So those are the three, those are three of the models. There can be many other models as well, but those are three that I find very common. So the final question to bring it all back to the beginning of sort of, if you will, the what I felt was the disconnect between you as a person and then what the book is espousing. Um, give it 85%. Mm -hmm. 
I I love that you went and researched the best manufacturing lines in the world and realized and then and found out that they run at 85% because as you write, a planned downtime is cheaper than an unplanned downtime. I find that, Christina, to be so valuable to think about in all of our lives as it relates to your career, your personal life, your investment in kids and your your, your relationship that that running with 15% reserve to some degree, having the plan downtime rather than the emergency downtime is really so much, it, it, as far as longevity on anything, mm-hmm. it seems to make so much sense when you read it in the way that you described it in your book. Mm-hmm. It's one of the hardest to do. I, I do not uh, make light of how difficult this is. I am still working on this, but but it it is crucial. Right. And and you pointed out it's exactly the thing. It's like you are going to have downtime like life is complicated and messy and there are mistakes and there are screw ups. You will have downtime. The only question is whether you have left space for it. And so you have room for maintenance, for do overs for serendipity, for really amazing opportunities you hadn't planned for, whether you have space for that already or whether you have to cancel a bunch of stuff in order to squeeze that in or burn out in order to make it happen. But it's going to happen one way or another. And so part of it is is retraining how we think about what is at capacity for our lives. And, and I do this, you know, in total, I think through my entire portfolio, all the things that I've committed to, including my my family, my hobbies, my community, my job, that total has to do 85% of my total capacity. So I still have downtime. But within each category, I try to only max out within my my work week, 85% of my time. And that includes my working blocks. You know, I black them out. I think about everything that I'm doing has a shape. You know, it's not just a to-do list, a lines. They have a shape. You can think about it like like Tetris. They have a shape and they either fit or they don't. <laughs> and so as I think through the week and two and three weeks ahead, I put everything on my calendar to see the shape of my week. And I can see, is there slack in the system or not? And if there's not, I need to either push things out, cancel them or shrink them. But in some way or another, I have to build in Slack because otherwise, if I'm running at 100%, every minute I'm doing anything, I'm not just in the work. I'm also hovering above it, monitoring. Are we still on track? Is anything coming down that's going to disrupt it? I understand how 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 rigid the whole thing is and how prone it will be to breakage. And so I can't actually be focused on anything because I'm also conscientious of of everything breaking. And so to give yourself slack also allows that sense of flow because you can get into the work and say, I have already asked me, already planned for there to be space if something goes wrong. So I'm not going to care about that right now. Right now, I'm just going to focus on this thing I'm doing. So I'm super appreciative that you brought a hundred percent for the hour that we had together. Um, it's been a real joy. Um, congratulations on the book, uh, to everyone I, who has joined us for this hour, which is lots and lots of people by the count at the bottom of the screen. Um, the portfolio life is a great read. Um, thank you, Christina. And it's great to have had you uh, on today with me. And, uh, I hope everyone has a great day. And next week is, as uh, Ezra Klein. I hope those of you who joined us today can join us again next week. Thanks very much, Christina. Have a great day. Thanks so much, Willie.